Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash recommend today. There's a couple of people um, that really do know what they're talking about. We'll talk to one of those guys coming up here in a moment. Uh, his name is Barry Shuck. Um, he And we welcome him in. Uh, we talked and we welcome Barry into the North Olmsted Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram hotline. He is a Yahoo uh, sports contributor um, and uh, really welcome him in again for a second time. I really enjoyed my conversation with him. Barry Shuck, how are you doing today? Doing good, Garrett. Yourself? I'm doing really well, man. Um, you know, it, it, we had a great conversation uh, the last time that we, that we spoke. Um, sure. and, and we looked at it and, and you have uh, a series out that I that are really is very interesting um, and, and the series is is where where are the former Browns um, right now um, what made you um, really go in into looking at that that those type stories and 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 how did that all start about going back and just trying to find old Browns and to, and to check up on them to see what they're up to now well, two parts. One, I'm a fan, and and second, I'm I'm a journalist. So those people have stories, and a lot of those older players, they basically are the fabric of the evolution of pro football. You take players that were playing in the 1970s when they signed the contract. It was for like $100,000 for three years, maybe a $35,000 signing bonus. Well, that's peanuts considering what today is. A practice squad players this past year made $10,000 a week. So those players built what the NFL is today. I find that they're interesting. They have interesting story. And who doesn't want to be on the phone with somebody that actually played for the Browns at one time. Yeah, that 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 has to be a treat. And you talked about some of the interesting stories. Uh, you know, you have the Eric Zier story. You have so many of these other stories about where they are today. Um, what is one of the most interesting Browns player from the series that you covered and who has a very interesting story in terms of what they do now after their playing career and after they played in Cleveland? I, I really enjoyed Gary Collins. 
He played in the the 1960s, and the 1964 NFL championship was the last championship that Cleveland Browns won. He was the MVP of that game. Leading up to that game against the Baltimore Colts, they were 19-point favorites, the Colts were. Gary Collins came out during the week leading up to the championship game and predicted the Browns would win by three touchdowns, which was unheard of. It was like Joe Namath uh, doing the guarantee in Super Bowl three. It was unheard of. The, the Colts were just dominating on offense and dominating on defense, and the Browns were a, a good adversary. They'd only lost three games that, that year, but – it was just unheard of. It was played in Cleveland. The goalposts were on the goal line at that point, and it was like an H goalpost. The Browns won 27 to nothing. Gary Collins scored three touchdowns, um, uh, two of them on passes, one on an end around, and they just absolutely dominated. But he, in his stories, uh, he won a Corvette, a 64 Corvette for being the the game's MVP. He said it was really fast, but after two years, he said, you know, I'm married and got two kids. What do I need a Corvette for? And he sold it. But just the the time period of what those guys were for, he said he won $3,500 for the winning share and got a Corvette. And to him, that was like, like money. Now I'll say the 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 people former Browns that I have talked to the most intelligent was Carmen Policy. He was the co-founder of the New Browns and of course you know him as as being the president of the 49ers all those years with with Joe Montana, correct? Yeah, one of the one of the biggest architects I mean out there and I was so so excited when he they he was part of the new organization coming over to Cleveland to bring him back in 99. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, uh, and when the Denver Broncos were so would their owner Bolin uh, died and his, his children had a, a squabble about who owned it. The NFL called in Carmen policy to settle that he owns a vineyard today uh, in other words, he doesn't just make wine for himself and his wife and his family and his friends. He makes wine to sell to other people and and to make a profit. But he was an extremely intelligent, but he was a nice guy, and we had a good laugh. One of the questions I asked him, I said, um, so you're friends with Joe Montana, correct? And he said, of course. He said, well, can we come over to your house and can you get Joe Montana to come out and throw the football with us in your backyard? And he died laughing on something like that. <laughs> um, I think I think the, the former players who probably gave me the most football knowledge, oddly enough, are the kickers. I interviewed Phil Dawson, uh, Matt McCrane, who was just uh, with the Browns, and then Matt Barr. Phil Dawson taught me about the wind conditions at uh, at Cleveland, the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium. There is a flag uh, waving today that Phil Dawson had put up. He had a sniper for the CIA tell him about wind conditions and multiplication tables, and that's how he decides how the, the, 
where he has to aim his kick. Now, Matt McCrane, what he taught me is I assumed if the wind was blowing right to left and it was blowing pretty extreme, that you would aim your kick for the outside of the goalpost, the right outside, so that the wind would grab the ball and then hook it into the goal. He said, no. He said, what you do is you always aim for the goalpost, but you lean the ball differently. And I went, oh, this I had never even thought about that. Amazing. This and then Matt Barr, he taught me, uh, told me about the stadium. But Matt Barr also told me something that I had never realized. Uh, I said, what is the, the difficulty in, in a field goal? And I said, and it does it. When a coach calls a timeout, does it really ice a kicker? He said, it may some. He said, but what you don't understand about a, 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 a field goal or an extra point is that it's nine against 11. I said, what do you mean by that? I said, there's 11 on each side. He said, well, think about it. There's the kicker and the holder, and then there's nine offensive linemen, but there's 11 defenders that can rush. I'd never thought about that. He said, and think about every kick. You've got to have a good uh, snap. You've got to have a good hold. The holder has to spin the ball uh, correctly with the laces out. Then he has to spin the ball to where the, that kicker wants the angle of the ball. Then all nine guys up front have to block, and that's just to get the kickoff. You never really think about that. You never, you never really think about the fact that you know the kicker and the holder can't block. So it, it you know, these are these are all fascinating things, and, and some of these stories are just, just tremendous. And um, we talking to, to Barry Shuck uh, on the North Armstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. He's a staff writer for DogsByNature.com, also a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association. Um, Barry, this is a, another question that I've always wondered, as you are a historian of the Cleveland Browns, um, the history of the Browns colors, right? The, the brown and orange, right? The history right. of those colors in Cleveland, you know, how did they come about? Um, and and um, I guess a two-part question, why has there never been a, an official logo? And also, a little bit on this as well, the elf. Um, that that logo on hats on shirts people love that um why has that not been used and and how come uh that is not an official logo so i kind of threw a lot at you but we'll see i think you can handle it yeah well as far as the browns colors when the browns were invented they it was a new pro football league called the all-american football conference there were thousands of GIs that had lost their college eligibility that had gone into the war. And coming out, there were 12 NFL teams, and there were thousands and thousands of of guys that wanted to play professional football. So another league, an NFL rival league, was started, and they went after each other's players. They went after each other's executives and front office people and coaches. And the Cleveland Rams had just won the 1945 NFL championship and were about to move to Los Angeles. Uh, Before then, uh, travel to games was mainly by uh, railroad. 
but air travel had come in, so the NFL owners finally voted that the Rams could move to Los Angeles. Well, the AAFC put a team in Cleveland, and their owner was Mickey McBride. He owned he was a very rich man. He owned two taxi companies in the city of Cleveland. He hired Paul Brown, who was still in the Navy. So Paul Brown was making a Navy check and a Cleveland Browns uh, check. And Paul Brown, at the time, was the most recognizable sports figure in the state of Ohio. He had coached Maslin High School to six state championships. Then he coached Ohio State and won the national championship. So with all that experience, Paul Brown knew guys that played for him, but he also knew guys that played for other teams. Like quarterback Otto Graham was a running back for Northwestern, but he could throw from the halfback position. Paul Brown contacted all these players while he was still in the Navy and while most of these guys were still overseas somewhere. Um, Lou the Togrosa was in the Philippines. Um, Paul Brown sent him two footballs in a contract, and that's how he uh, became on the team. Well, Paul Brown was given the key to the franchise by the owner, Mickey McBride. Paul Brown made all the decisions. At the time, the team was just called Cleveland. Well, when Paul Brown finally got to the States, he was looking for a training camp site that was at a college that he could put his team through, and his travels took him to Bowling Green and Bowling Green State University. And Coach Brown was given a tour when he stopped in at the athletic building. Now, he had coached Maslin High School, and their colors were orange and black. Paul Brown liked that combination of colors, and he liked the color orange because no no NFL team and no AAFC team had the colors orange. So he thought that that would be something that would be just for his team. But when he was given a tour of the athletic building at Bowling Green State University, what caught his eye was a framed football jersey hanging on the wall in a frame. It was brown with orange and white striping on the sleeves. And Paul Brown really liked that school's orange and brown color combination. He already knew that he was going to use orange And after thinking it over, he decided that he would take orange and brown as his colors. So that that eliminates one of your questions. Um, What was the second thing you asked me? Um, The uh, Browns logo, Um, you know, the absence of the logo on the helmet. Um, And then right. Everyone loves um, you see the elf uh, that's on the you know jersey, right. and 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 how did that come to be? Why is it no longer used? And what's the history behind the elf and the no logo on the helmet? Okay, the, from 1946 to 1949, the Browns were in the All American Football Conference. They won that league every year. 1950. Uh, The Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Baltimore Colts were merged from the AAFC into the NFL. From the first four years of existence, the Browns used white leather helmets. When they got to the NFL, 
there was a rule that no team could wear white or light-colored helmets for night games. Do you know what the reason for that was? No. They used a white football for night games. Wow. How weird is that? that? So what the NFL didn't want, they didn't want somebody's helmet to come flying off because they were made out of leather and somebody thinking it was a a fumble. So the Detroit Lions had silver helmets. At night, they had to wear blue. The San Francisco 49ers wore white helmets. At night, they had to wear red. The New York Yanks wore blue helmets. At night, they had to wear white. When when Cleveland got into, into the NFL, Paul Brown had a decision to make. He liked white helmets. He was a person that liked just normal things, vanilla, nothing flashy. Um, and so a solid white helmet was right up his alley. So at night, he had his equipment guy paint all the helmets uh, orange. Then for day games, the equipment guy would paint all the helmets white. Well, that went on from 1950, 1951, for two years, the equipment guy was doing that. Now, plastic helmets had been invented since 1948 by the Rydell Company, but the helmets were not very sturdy. The first ones had a flat top, then they made a dome shape, but the problem is because the plastic wasn't strictly sound, upon certain impacts, what usually happened is underneath the, the ear hole, it would crack, making the helmet uh, unusable. But in 1952, they came out with other plastics that were being experimented with different applications, and Rydell uh, came out with a new helmet, and Paul Brown ordered the entire team orange helmets. Now, that's when the orange helmets came into being was 1952. And then what Paul Brown did was put a single white stripe down the helmet. Now, that was used up into 1956. Now, 1957, it's what's called the Jim Brown helmet. Jim Brown came into the NFL in 1957 and the Browns put jersey numbers on the side of the helmets. Have you ever seen that helmet? No, I have not seen that. Um, if you watch the movie about Ernie Davis, oh, they they'll use they'll use they called the Express. They use that helmet. It's a solid orange helmet that's got brown numbers on the side and a single white stripe. They use that for three years. Then in 1960. Uh, the striping was changed to two brown stripes, one single white stripe down the center like it is today, but still with the jersey number on it. So for four years, the Browns had jersey numbers on the side of the helmet. Then in 1961, they took the jersey numbers off, and it's been that way ever since. However, 1965... Art Modell is the new owner of the Browns. He bought the team in 1963. He commissioned an artist to draw a logo and came up with a CB logo. It's got a C that the bottom of the C comes around and makes a B, brown inside with a white outline, 
and the the purpose and the intent was to have the Cleveland Browns with a CB logo on it. There were toys made, electric football that year. There were coasters. There were um, pencil sharpeners, all with a CB logo on it. However, the the logo never met the field. Now, I've interviewed at least three players that played during that time, and I asked them, did that helmet, did you ever wear it during practices? And they said, no. I said, did you ever wear it during a preseason game? Because there was a, a rumor that they wore them in a preseason game and the players took all the stickers off. He said, no, that never happened. Did you ever wear it in a game? He said, no. So I don't know why that never made the field, but that is called the 1965 CB helmet. You know, you know what, Barry? It's on, this is almost like Paul Harvey, and this is the rest of the story. This is this is tremendous. Um, we're up at, up up against a break here, but would sure. you mind coming back next week at, at the same time to finish telling the story about the helmet? This is so fascinating. Um, there's three other questions I want to get to as well. The Elf logo, also the dome and in, in the stadium. Oh, oh, 20 years. How the stadium get where is that? Um, we would love to have you again next week uh, to tell the, your, your, the rest of these stories. Uh, would that be okay? That's great, Garrett. Enjoyed my time with you. Oh, thank you so much. And this is the the tremendous um, Barry Shuck. He's on the North Olmsted Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Man, I wish I could talk to him all day. Um, we'll have him back again next week at the same place, same time.